Well, for the next 13 weeks, we are going to start a sermon series between now and Advent called The Shape of the Liturgy. How the liturgy is shaped and how the liturgy shapes us. We recognize that many of you were not raised as Anglicans. Some of you, this is your very first time in an Anglican church today. Welcome. We recognize that there are many different parts of our service, and and it might confuse you and you want clarification. There might also be moments for you that speak to you in a special way. The Holy Spirit raises up your hearts into the very presence of Jesus Christ, and yet you're wondering, why does this moment in the liturgy speak so clearly to me. I remember when I first became an Anglican, I would cry at very, I'm a big cry baby. I would cry at various parts of the service and I couldn't know why I couldn't figure it out. And the more I learned, the more I realized how God was speaking to his people in these beautiful words of the liturgy that all come from scripture itself. While this liturgy isn't word for word scripture, all of it is based on the scripture itself. Now, there might also be many of you in the room who have been Anglicans for some time. You might be like me. I've been an Anglican my entire adult life. And therefore, I need to come back to the liturgy with fresh eyes. I need to come back to it remembering its beauty and remembering how the Spirit utilizes these words to speak and form me week in and week out. Now, each week we will be looking at specific parts of the liturgy. In a few weeks, we're going to be looking at the prayer of purity. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. That was my son's very first multi-syllable sentence, or multi-sentence saying. It was the first paragraph he ever said, right? Took me forever. What's he saying? He's saying the prayer of purity. Oh my goodness. It's a beautiful prayer. But before we get into the very beginning of our liturgical service, the blessing and the prayer of purity, I thought it would be important for us to take a step back and look at the overarching shape of the liturgy, the shape that gives shape to the whole thing, the call and the response. All of our worship is shaped by a call to the congregation and a response back. It's a dialogue, not a monologue. And what this is meant to represent is that Christ is speaking to his bride through his prophets, whether that's a pastor or a deacon or a layperson, and the bride responds in kind. We have been given the great privilege, the grace, that we are invited into conversation with our God not because we are particularly worthy of conversation. In fact, we are particularly unworthy for conversation. But our good and kind Lord chose to descend to us to bring us up into life with him. And that mark of grace, of God initiating and his people responding, is the very heart of the liturgy and the very heart of the gospel that our God chose to speak to us when we were still in darkness. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And I want to look at three things today. First, inherent in our worship is the belief that our God in grace chooses to speak to unworthy conversation partners. And what that reveals to us is if you have ever felt unworthy, this is the one place where you are made worthy. This is the one place where you have a seat at the table. 
where you are invited into conversation with the most important person to ever exist, our triune God. Second, I want to look at the nature of God's call to us. Often when we think about words, we think of them just as descriptors. This is wood, right? However, when God speaks, what did our psalm tell us today? Things happen. In the liturgy, when I get to call forth to you the promises of God, God is forming a people. His words do not return void. His words spoke creation into being, and his words speak his people into a new kind of existence. And third, you are called to respond. You are invited into the dialogue with God. You are invited into communion with him. But we need to always remember that that response is also a work of grace. It's the Holy Spirit breathes through our vocal cords and lifts up worship to our God in heaven. Even our response is a gift from God. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And some of you who know me well are saying, oh no, we're buckling up for a theological and philosophical sermon. Yes, you are. Let's open it up. <laughs> but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of his name who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When I was a young pastor, I really looked up to a pastor out east. And I had a family connection with him. Some family members went to his church. And and they had mentioned to this pastor that their family member was coming into town. And he was a young Anglican priest, a nobody church planter in Littleton, Colorado. And he said, I'd love to talk to him. Let's get together. And I thought, wow, I get to talk to this guy who's the best preacher I've ever heard in my life. He's a theological genius. I shouldn't be able to have this conversation. I shouldn't even have his number. So I called him and no response. And I had his email. So I emailed him and no response. I was Facebook friends with him somehow. So I Facebook messaged him with no response. And in that moment, I remember feeling like I was a nobody church planter in Littleton, Colorado. How many of you have ever tried to speak to someone who is your superior in some way? They're smarter than you. They're better looking than you. They're a higher status than you. You know, this is so important for us to be ministering to our middle schoolers and high schoolers because how many of us face that daily in middle school and high school? Asking what table can I sit at in the lunchroom? It doesn't feel like a big deal now, but many of us still carry those wounds with us, feeling excluded from a conversation, feeling excluded from communion because of our status. Well, family, here's what we see in our passage today. At one time, we were in darkness, meaning we were a people of confusion, we were a people of shame. At one time, we were not a people, meaning we had no social status. We had no people that we could align with, no people that we could create an identity from. We had alienated ourselves from our one true source of identity, God himself, and we became a people who weren't a people, people without chests, people without faces. 
Our sin had robbed us of our identities. Our passage also tells us that at one time we were a people who did not have mercy. And what does that reveal to us? We were once a people of wrath, a people who stood before the lawgiver, God himself, as guilty. And he knew it, and we knew it. And yet it is precisely these who our Lord God chose to call out of darkness and bring into light. It is precisely men and women like you and like me that he did not leave in alienation. He did not leave in our isolation. He did not count us unworthy. But rather, we are, ought to remember from Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in darkness, our God called out to us. While we were not a people, our God chose to make us a people. While we were under his wrath, he chose to justify us. You see, the very first thing that we need to remember in the liturgy is that none of us deserve to be here by our own merit, but God has chosen to bring us together. Therefore, none of us uh, ought to look at some point in our life, some deep shame in our life, and run further away from the church, but we ought to run closer to it. The one place that we can have our identity restored, the one place that light can cast out the darkness within us, the one place where unworthy people can be wrapped in the righteousness of the one who is worthy, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we come together each and every Sunday reminding ourselves that our God has chosen to count us worthy of dialogue, worthy of a conversation as a pure act of grace. We are a people who have been brought to life, brought to conversation because of the goodness of our God. But second, we ought to remember that when he calls us into a conversation, he doesn't just leave us as we are. My uh, pastor in college, the name was Don Whipple. And over a con, you know, private conversation, I can tell you more as to why we went to that church. But we went to that church because we call it getting whippled. <laughs> every, my roommates and I, we were a rough crowd. And uh, we call it getting whippled at church every Sunday because Don would just tell you the truth. And he would always say, come as you are, but don't leave as you came. Come as you are, but don't leave as you came. And we ought to remember that when God speaks in the liturgy, the call that he ushers forth speaks new life into us, speaks identity into us, actually does something. Look back at Second, or 1 Peter 2.9 with me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, called you, which also means beckons you, summons you, like somebody invites someone to a party, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." The overtures to Genesis 1 here are very hard to miss. He has called us out of darkness and into light. What is the first act of God that is recorded in Scripture? He speaks and casts out the darkness by ushering in his light. 
When our God speaks, he creates. When our God speaks, he creates instantaneously because there, you know, I think about something and then I have to mull it over and then I kind of get out tools and I make something, right? There's a process whereby I create, not with God. When God speaks, when God acts, there is an instantaneous reality. He spoke and cast out the darkness of nothingness and breathed forth light and life. Now, it's interesting. This is what philosophers call an illocutionary act. You ever heard of that? An illocutionary act? Yes, thank you, Doug. Doug's a yes. <laughs> it's called speech act theory. And there's this idea going around, especially with, you know, the, uh, the new atheists, kind of the radical... Uh, Science, basically, science is religion. I can't remember the word for it. Doug will tell you sometime. That basically, words only describe things, right? This is wood. Tim is lanky and goofy. Okay, those are descriptors, but words don't do anything. But we all know that's ridiculous. Words do a great deal. Doug, you're a lawyer. You know words do a great deal. That's why we pay lawyers to do really hard things. They make really complicated word documents that do a lot. When a judge says innocent, the person who's in the dock doesn't say, ah, he's just describing it. No, it is a declaration and verdict of reality. And that man or woman can now go free. When two, uh, you know, a man and a woman come together at a wedding and they say, I do, and I declare them husband and wife, a metaphysical change happens. They are no longer two people. They are now one flesh. Words have power. And God's words have the greatest power. For when he speaks, he ushers forth reality. Now, it's beautiful. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us just this, that God not only spoke creation into being, he continues to speak creation into being. Hebrews chapter 1, we just preached through this last year. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. The word himself, his son, is the one who spoke creation into existence. But look at this. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only did the word speak forth creation, he continues to speak it forth as his beautiful song reverberates in all of existence, as he continues to say, let there be. Let there be Craig. Let there be Evan. Let there be Trinity Anglican. Let there be this Bible right here. He continues to uphold all things by the power of his word. Now, here's what else we see. We see this all over the ministry of Christ, don't we? When he pronounces, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. When he was hanging upon the cross and he pronounced, it is finished, it was finished. When he rose three days later 
And he met his disciples in the upper room in John chapter 20. And he said, peace be with you. He wasn't just saying hello. He was saying, I have brought peace to you. My resurrection has brought you into the new creation. And you are now at peace with God because of me. It is a declaration of reality. When God speaks, he ushers forward reality. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes the, uh, to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. When we have a conversation, the call that God issues forward is a call of power. Now, some of you might be asking yourselves, Tim, I thought you were supposed to be preaching on the liturgy, the call and the response of our worship. And all you're doing is philosophizing about God again. How does this apply? Well, I'll tell you how it applies. God uses instruments of speech, but he is still the one speaking. We see this all throughout the prophets. The prophets spoke with power, but it wasn't their words, it was the word of God. We see it with Peter in our passage today. Look at what Peter says. He has no right to say this on his own. He is merely speaking on behalf of God, but it is the Spirit speaking through him. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. What is Peter doing here? He is proclaiming the identity that God has given God's people to God's people on God's behalf. And you know, that's the great privilege that I have each Sunday. In the liturgy, I get to speak forth God's truth to you. And when God's word is spoken forth into the family of God, it creates a people. His word doesn't return void. His word actually has power. His word actually forms us into a specific kind of people, a new creation people, a people who are redeemed. Family, each week when we gather together in the liturgy, and you confess your sins. I get to tell you that you are forgiven. But it's not me telling you in my authority. I have no right to do that. I merely have a vetted authority from Christ himself. All I am saying is what Christ has already said. That if you've confessed your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are forgiven. And that word has power to cast out the shame and the darkness in our lives. The question is, do we actually believe it? Do we believe that God has actually forgiven us as much as he believes that he has forgiven us? Here's another one. Each week, you all get to speak as the mouthpiece of God to each other in the passing of the peace. Each week... When you proclaim the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you, what are you proclaiming? We are a people who are at 
peace because of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. To make us at peace with one another, at peace with God, at peace with the earth, and at peace with ourselves. You get to proclaim that as a representative of Jesus Christ because you are a royal priesthood. Each week when you come and receive the Eucharist, and whether it's me or it's Carrie or Kyle or any one of you, and you hear, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. What word ought you remember? That our Lord Jesus Christ has not forgotten his covenant with you. This is a covenant renewal ceremony week in and week out to remind you that your Lord loves you so much that he poured out his very blood to redeem you. Family, coming to church every Sunday and receiving the word proclaimed, receiving it rightly as the Holy Spirit opens up our hearts so that we might receive and be formed actually does something to us. It actually forms us. It forms our worldview as the one true story is told here week in and week out. It forms our identity as we recognize that we are children of God bought at a price. It forms us in grace as we recognize that each and every one of us are people that need grace as we come here together, not having our lives figured out, but seeking redemption in Christ alone. It reminds us week in and week out of who we are in Christ as he speaks forth that identity into us and forms us. The call of God has power. The call of God forms us. And just as he called us into his marvelous light, week in and week out, he beckons us forth again and again to walk in the light with him. Now, how are we called to respond. Look back at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night. When the church is called forth by Christ and the bride sees her glorious groom, our right and good response is to proclaim his excellencies. This is why we sing and worship. This is why whenever the word of God is read, how do you respond? Thanks be to God as an act of gratitude. This is why whenever the gift is extended, the right response is thanksgiving. Whenever grace is extended, the right response is gratitude. Our right response to our Lord and our Savior is to give Him praise. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. When I look at my baby, James, I just smile. I can't help it. You know, his ridiculous spiky hair. Oh, my goodness. His two little teeth down here. His glassy eyes. What is that about baby's eyes? They just flash all the time, right? They're so cute. I can't help it. I just smile at him. My wife and I have talked about it. We've, I don't know if we've ever smiled so much than when we've had babies in the house because they bring so much joy. And it's just an immediate response. You can be in the worst mood in the world, but when he starts, you know, doing whatever he does, you just smile. Well, family, we were created to have 
a far greater response to our Lord. We were created to have a far greater response to our God, that when we stand in the presence of beauty himself, when we stand in the presence of truth himself, when we stand in the presence of goodness himself, our right and good response is to proclaim his excellencies, to meet his face with joy, to respond to him not in, in vague worship, right? Not, you know, I don't want to get into all that. To actually preach. <laughs> to actually be filled with joy in the presence of our Lord. You know, I was raised in churches where nobody raised their hands. And I know many of you are still very uncomfortable with it. It is very normal biblically to raise your hands. Did you know that? The trees of the field do it. God spoke them forth to raise forward their branches to give glory to God. And he made you to do the same. To lift up your hearts to him in praise and thanksgiving is a right and a good response. And I know that many of you are from Germanic heritage where you're not supposed to do that. But it is a good and right and fitting response to worship our God as if he truly is the one who is worthy of worship. But I want to make one last point because I'm running out of time. Our worship is not our worship. We're going to get into this a lot more in the prayer of purity. And as many of you have read this book, I recommend it, although there are some qualifications. If you end up reading it, tell me, and I'll, I'll talk you through some stuff I disagree with because he's wrong on a couple of things. But James Torrance's book, Worship, Communion, and the Triune God of Grace, is just so helpful. It was so eye-opening for me, the Trinitarian contours of our worship, that even our response to God is God's response to himself through us. Think about it for a minute. How do we have access to God, our Father? Hebrews 4 tells us, because we are united to the great high priest himself, Jesus Christ who lives at the very right hand of God in the holiest of holies. And family, if you have been wrapped in him, hidden in him because of the ascension, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he also ascended into the holiest of holies as our great high priest marching in to the throne room of God to offer up prayers and supplication for you perpetually and eternally. And when we worship our Lord... We are brought into the worship of Jesus Christ. Here's how I often think about it. I have a terrible voice, so I love sitting next to and worshiping next to people with wonderful voices. I would love to just be sitting right next to Darla. Zach, you know, you get, you're lucky. And just pretending that Darla's voice is my voice, because clearly God likes her voice better than mine, right? Well, here's the reality. Jesus takes your off-pitch singing and makes it perfect. Jesus takes your confused prayers, because how many of you have ever not known what to pray for? And he offers them to the Father as perfect. Jesus takes even the Sundays where you drag yourself to church and takes the honor that you give God, that you might feel is halfway done, and makes it perfect. But not only that, it's also the spirit within us. 
Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, I love it. In the very beginning, when God made Adam, he breathed forth his spirit into him. We were meant to have the spirit give us life. We were meant to have the breath of God blow through our vocal cords to give praise right back to him. Worship is an act of grace from God to bring forth unworthy recipients like you and me into relationship with him. But even then, it's an act of grace back to God as the Spirit breathes through us in worship. And as the, as the Son himself takes our imperfect worship and makes it perfect. While we are liturgical, while we do believe that it's important to be liturgical in our worship, it is important to have a dialogue, not a monologue. As Christ speaks to his people and his people respond, we are first and foremost Trinitarian in our worship. Believing that it is an act initiated by the Father responded to by the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what that ought to remind us of is that week in and week out, our worship is built upon and enacted as a pure act of grace. On our own, we don't deserve to be here. On our own, we can't give praise and honor to God. But by His grace, He has chosen to call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your grace, you called us forth. In your grace, you spoke us into new life. In your grace, you have brought us into a life of communion and worship of your good and holy name. Lord, would you open up our hearts to receive the work that you are doing week in and week out as we gather and worship you. Lord, would we see with fresh eyes what you are speaking to us and who you are making us to be? And would you move in our hearts to return worship to you, the author and perfecter of our faith? Amen.